0: Daniel, you knew today was the chariot race, man, we're both, what, you were green? I thought I was supposed to wear green, you were the one who was supposed to wear blue, right? I, no, 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 you, uh, wait, wait, what? I guess we should have called, huh? But, but it's, uh, I guess, I guess, I guess we're in Rome, so we don't have phones. Okay, but anyway, let's just, <laughs> let's well, just, the new Rome, but well, still well, no phones. Well, yeah, I mean, I, well, well, okay, well, that settles it, one of us is going to have to be shirts and one of us is going to have to be skins. You do realize that we're in uh, Togas. Skins is going to be pretty skinny. Uh, well, uh, we don't have time for that now. The chariot race is about to start. Oh. Oh, I don't know if the chariot race is going to start. I think that's Belisarius over there, and he looks mad. Oh. He probably ought to get out of here, oh, honestly. God, man, the riots are are just are over. Okay, fine. Let's just get to the plug. Um, uh, we are the Lots of Bonapartes. I'm Glenn. With me, as always, is Daniel. Hey, hey. And we love Robin Pearson's History of Byzantium for exploring a time period that is fascinating, and infuriating, and interesting, and hilarious, and serves the bridge, and it's often overlooked, Daniel, right? That's right, uh, and Robin does such a fantastic job uh, explicating it and just making it uh, accessible, not only to giant uh, Byzantium nerds like Glenn and myself, but really to everybody. It is uh, easily the history podcast I most recommend to someone who says, hey, I'd like to try a history podcast. Now, always. If you, like, if you like Robin's podcast, you might like us. Um, we are definitely less classy and interesting. We are the Lots of Bonapartes. Find us over on iTunes. And on with the show. Oh, crap, it's Belisarius. Let's go! Duck!
1: Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 74, The Quest for Legitimacy. Recently in the UK there was an election. It had a somewhat surprising result, and a government that not many had expected to see. But everyone accepted the outcome because the vast majority of the public think that the way we choose our leaders is fair and confers legitimacy on the governing party. We're so used to democracy that it doesn't seem like such a big deal, but you only need to look at, say, the current status of the Arab Spring to see how ephemeral this concept can be. When we look at the Roman Empire, time and again, we see that legitimacy took years to build, and seconds to destroy. You might think that Leo III was seen by everyone as the rightful ruler. He had saved the empire from the greatest threat it ever faced. He had ruled unopposed for two decades, he had won military victories, and he had left a healthy, competent, and fully grown son to replace him. And yet still, it was not enough. Despite its longevity, the Heraclian dynasty had been constantly threatened by usurpers because ultimately the loss of Egypt, Palestine and Syria branded them as illegitimate in the eyes of many. Once they were gone, the empire was bereft of any good reason to believe in any new ruler. Not Leontius, Absimar, Vardan, Artemius or Theodosius, none of them convinced their peers that they possessed the right to rule. And as each was in turn supplanted, so the tender shoots of legitimacy were ripped from the soil and replanted on ever more barren ground. Some men had now grown up in the empire of Leo the Third, and accepted that his family were the rightful ruling dynasty. But many hadn't, and one such man was Artavastos. We don't know when or where he was born, but his name suggests he was Armenian, and he rose, of course, to be Stratigos of the Armeniacon theme. Perhaps he was slightly younger than Leo when the two men came together for a summit on the Empire's failing health back in 716. Leo also had the slightly senior post and so Artavasdos agreed, for the sake of unity, to support his colleague's bid for the throne. We know nothing about their personal relationship, but clearly Leo trusted his general. He put him in charge of the palace during the siege, and then made him strategos of the Opsikion. after that. In both cases, he put the security of his throne and his family in the hands of Artavasdos. He also married him to his daughter. Perhaps there had been an agreement that should Leo die at some point along their journey, then the Armenian general would assume the title of Vasilevs, but we don't know. Artavasdos was not content playing second fiddle, but remained loyal to Leo while he was alive. Perhaps he hoped that when Leo was gone, he could at least rule for his son until Constantine came of age, but Leo kept living. And when he finally passed away in 741, Constantine was not only 22 years old, but had shared in the military glory of the victory at Acroinon. Surely it was now too late for the general. His time had passed. Legitimacy had been transferred to the young Caesar. Hadn't it? No. For Artavasdos knew that God hadn't chosen Leo to rule he had, and now he would change God's mind and finally sit on the throne himself. Emperor Constantine V had already been crowned by his father at a young age, and so upon Leo's death he took the office and the acclamation of the crowd in his stride. The victory at Akroinon the previous summer was still fresh in everyone's mind, not least his. Could the Arabs be convinced to stop their damaging raids on Anatolia? Perhaps another long casualty list would do the trick. Leo had died in summer, and already news was trickling in that, like clockwork, Arab armies were crossing the mountains and attacking the countryside. The new emperor mounted his horse, gathered the city's garrison, and marched out to try and find them he sent word to Artevasdos to come and meet him to create a plan of action. As the two sides approached each other near Dorelaeum, the general informed his men that instead of kneeling before the new sovereign, they were to bring him to his knees. When Constantine arrived, the rest of the Obsecyion launched themselves at him. Shocked and unprepared, the emperor's smaller force was quickly broken. However, Constantine himself escaped. Riding with his bodyguard as hard as they could, they broke from the battle and disappeared into the countryside. Artavasdos dispatched riders to track him down, but he wasn't going to follow. He headed to Constantinople. Back in the capital, the emperor had put Theophanes Monotes in charge. Monotes meaning one ear. Artavasdos arrived, sending word to him that Constantine had died in battle. It's not clear if he implied that this battle was with the Arabs, or if he'd killed him for being unfit to rule. Either way, Theophanes only needed one ear to hear the message loud and clear, and promptly switched sides. He arrested Leo's remaining steadfast supporters, and opened the gates for the new emperor. Artivasdos crowned his son Nicephorus, co ruler, while his position was further secured by the fact that one of his other sons, Nicetus, had inherited his father's position as head of the Armeniacon theme. Breathless and anxious, Constantine finally made his way to Amorium, Leo's former home as strategos of the Anatolikon. The men in charge here were loyal to the former emperor and welcomed his son as one of their own. The emperor in exile quickly made contact with Sicinius, another man appointed by his father, who was in charge of the Thracision theme. Sicinius swore loyalty to Constantine and suddenly the empire's major military forces were neatly divided between north and south. Artavasdos now controlled the Opsikion and the Armeniacon, along with the capital's ships, while Constantine was recognized by the Thrakision, the Anatolicon, and the Kivirioton fleet. Twenty years of peace were gone. The Byzantines were back to killing one another. We don't have specific details about the battles which followed. All we can conclude is that Constantine really was a good military commander. Having spent a fretful winter at Amorium, he marched west in spring 742 and linked up with Sicinius' forces. Artavasdos was not planning to hide in the palace. He had come in person to crush his brother-in-law. The two sides met near Sardis, and Constantine emerged victorious. Artavazdos and the Opsician troops retreated north, and as Constantine followed, many began to defect to his banner. However, Artavasdus' son Nicetas was on the march with the Armenia Khan. Con. Constantine advanced and again made pitched battle, this time in Bithynia. Again the young emperor won the day, though we are told that it was a bloody event with heavy losses on both sides. The remaining detachments of the Armenia Khan retreated and Constantine closed in on his capital. With the Kivi-Rioton following him, Constantine set up a blockade. The capital's fleet attempted to break out, but were defeated comfortably near Abydos. So far from the capital, there was no chance of deploying liquid fire. By September, the emperor in exile crossed the Bosphorus with Sicinius, and the two armies set up camp outside the Theodosian land walls. I imagine someone pointed out the irony of Leo's son being forced to take up Maslama's old position at the Hebdomen, But Constantine had two important advantages over the Muslim general. One was that no one inside the city had prepared for this siege. As winter set in, Constantine's men were shivering in their tents, but inside the capital, panic was spreading. Because the food supplies were running low. The other was that Constantine was recognised as the emperor by the farmers of Thrace. So instead of hiding when men came asking for food, the local inhabitants handed it over. I've often wondered in these situations, how does a general keep paying his men, or indeed pay for food when they're camped outside the walls of a city, and the imperial treasury is safe inside the palace? Thankfully, we get an interesting detail during this siege. Apparently, Constantine's men began minting leather coins and using them to pay the merchants bringing food to them. The deal was that once the emperor was back on the throne, these leather nomisma could be redeemed for the real thing. It's a clever idea, but one that probably only worked because Constantine was recognised by all concerned as the rightful ruler or, more practically, that he had a good chance of winning. Inside the city, conditions continued to deteriorate. A bushel of barley was being sold for ten gold coins, a bushel of pulse for nineteen. Artavazdos was forced to allow the common people to start leaving. He just couldn't feed them. He had to be careful, though. He didn't want all the skilled workers to depart – nor did he want senators or officials taking vital information to the enemy. However, as winter stretched on, important men began to dress up as women, or put on the robes of a monk to try and fool the guards and escape. Once outside, they all sought out Constantine and pledged their loyalty to him. Artevasdos hung on, though, throughout the summer of 743, harvesting what crops he could and bringing in some supplies by sea. He again attempted to break the naval blockade, and again failed. An attempt to sally out from the land walls was easily repulsed by Constantine's men. Amongst the dead that day was Theophanes Monotes. Nicetas led the Armeniacon back to Bithynia to try and help his father, but Constantine crossed back to Asia, defeated him again near Nicomedia, and took him prisoner. As the siege entered its second winter, Constantine decided to force the issue. He began looking for the right moment to storm the walls, and on November 2nd, the time was right. A surprise assault was ordered, the guards were taken by surprise, and the city quickly fell. Word reached Artavasdos, who fled across the Bosphorus. He was captured near Nicaea and brought back to the city in chains. Constantine had carried all before him. He celebrated his restoration in style and had Artavastos and his sons paraded through the Hippodrome. Then it was time for their punishment. The civil war had been a shock for young Constantine, only now 25 years old. Some of the people who'd betrayed him he'd known since he was an infant. If he couldn't trust his father's closest ally, then who could he trust? The emperor didn't go on a wide bloody purge, but he did execute and exile where necessary, and he did have Artavasdos and his sons blinded. Others suffered similar fates, including, surprisingly, Sicinius, the Thracian commander who had been with him throughout the siege. Was the emperor seeing enemies where there were none, or was Sicinius a genuine threat to his reign? The civil war had lasted two and a half years, far longer than any since the time of Heraclius and Focus. If God favoured Constantine, then there was evidence to be found in the absence of serious Arab raids during a time when the caliphate might have profited greatly from Byzantine disunity. Both sides had sent embassies to the caliph asking for his assistance or understanding during the war. But the caliph was occupied elsewhere. Fortunately for the Byzantines, the Arab Empire was involved in its own internal struggles at exactly the same time. The sitting caliph died in 743, and his successor was so unpopular that he was murdered a year later. It was just the break in the fighting which the emperor needed to put his house in order. Over the next few years, he began to make major changes to the empire's military the Obsigion theme had to go. They had been involved in the downfall of Constance II, Varden the Armenian, and Artemius the secretary, even before they had turned on Constantine. He couldn't allow this independent command to continue to sit so close to the capital. So he broke it up and created a new force independent from any larger theme army. This was the Tachmata. Or the regiments. Again, my English speaking brain wants to say tagmata, but I will try to be more accurate to the Greek, though a G sound may slip in now and again. The Obsikion had been formed from the old praecental armies, the soldiers in the Emperor's presence. They had been designed to be the central field army of the Empire, the force who would always be safe from surprise assaults because of their central location who could then be deployed either east or west depending on where they were needed. The Obsequion had become a dangerous successor because the empire was now avoiding pitched battles wherever they could. So the Obsequion stayed largely at home and could meddle in the politics of the capital. Constantine still wanted an army guarding his home, but he also wanted one which might go out campaigning like the Praesentals of old. He didn't want them to have a commander, though, who might try to make himself emperor. So, the new Tachmata were organized in such a way to meet all of these needs. The new regiment was to be split into six divisions three cavalry and three infantry. The three cavalry units were given rather familiar names the Scoli, the Excubitors, and the Watch. The names were of course taken from the old palace guards, but now represented the empire's best and brightest cavalrymen. Each unit was about 4,000 men strong. The infantry units were called the Numera, the Walls, and the Optimates. The Optimates would organise the baggage train for the cavalry regiments when on campaign. The Numera would usually stay behind and garrison the capital and you get no prizes for guessing the primary function of the walls. I haven't attempted the correct Greek for these units, as they are more peripheral to the story. Each of these divisions would have their own commander, but no overall commander. There would be no strategos of the Tachmata. Their commander on campaign was designed to be the emperor. To further ensure their loyalty was to him alone, Constantine arranged for each division to live in different spots in and around the capital, some in Thrace, some in Anatolia, and furthermore that within each unit half the men would be stationed somewhere else. The only time that the whole unit, and indeed the whole tachmata, would come together in one spot would be when they were on campaign and commanded by the emperor. Having just suffered from a rebellion very close to home, in more ways than one, Constantine was attempting to prevent this from ever happening again. I won't be updating the map just yet, as there's one more major change coming soon, but the Obsequion theme would still exist, they were just much reduced and would now simply guard the northwest coastal region of Anatolia. A formal theme of Thrace was also established to guard the area which the emperor had his eye on for an expansion of imperial territory. Not all of this happened at once. Some of it may have taken place over the next couple of decades, but eventually the results of this upheaval were to make local army plots against the emperor far more difficult, and to give the Vassilevs a mobile striking force to take on campaign with them. Over time, the Tachmata would become the elite soldiers of the empire. Unlike other theme troops, they were fully professional and better paid. In his quest for legitimacy, Constantine would also work hard to ensure the loyalty of these soldiers, to get them to associate their promotion and prestige with him and his dynasty. The civil war in the Caliphate would give him this opportunity. In 746, news of another rebellion across the border convinced Constantine to go on the offensive. Leading his forces across the Taurus mountains, he made his way to Germanicaya, where his father Leo had been born and expelled the Arab garrison. He did the same to two neighboring towns. He then gathered up the Christian inhabitants and marched them home with him. It was a good PR move, as it was the first invasion of Arab territory since before the siege, but Constantine viewed the new settlers as his main objective. These Syrian Christians were taken to Thrace, where they were given farms and land to live on. The emperor had plans to turn this area into a fully Roman dominion once again. However, the following year, Yersinia Pestis was to deny him the chance to go on the march again. This was to be the last great outbreak of the plague which had arrived in Egypt two centuries earlier. This time, the initial outbreak had been in Syria, but because of the new orientation of the Mediterranean world, it had to travel in the opposite direction to reach Constantinople. Moving south, it infected Egypt, then Africa, before moving into the empire through Sicily, Italy, Greece, and finally, New Rome. Our historian Theophanes was born about ten years after this, and so he probably heard first-hand accounts of the devastation. And as with the original attack on the capital, victims reported seeing apparitions, strange visitors who spoke to them, or would attack their family and friends before their eyes. Again, the swelling appeared in armpits and groins. Again, nothing could be done to save them. The bodies began piling up, and the summer heat made life in the capital especially grim. Whole houses were just boarded up. The imperial authorities were at a loss with how to deal with the sheer number of corpses. Waggons were piled high with them, and poor pack animals were forced to carry increasing loads out of the city. Once all the graveyards were full, bodies were dumped into empty cisterns, and gardens were dug up to make room for them. The emperor had decided to leave the capital to try and avoid infection. He set up his court at Nicomedia, but kept up a regular correspondence with the officials who'd stayed behind Almost twelve months later, once the worst of the ravages were over, the emperor was faced with an empty city. Thousands of people were gone. Officials, skilled and unskilled workers, all vital to the functioning of the capital, were dead. Wasting no time, Constantine ordered the imperial fleet to head out to Greece and the islands of the Aegean to find new settlers. I'm sure that some of those who migrated to the capital were not thrilled at their relocation, but the majority seemed to have been happy and were grateful to the emperor. For some of them, life in the capital represented an increase in wealth, status and prospects that they could never have dreamed of, though it's worth noting that the migration of native Romans from Greece allowed more Slavic tribes to settle there. This repopulation was a massive administrative project. Our historians record almost no details about how it was carried out. But the capital didn't shut up shop, and the empire's government continued smoothly over the next few years. Which all suggests that the emperor's swift and decisive response really was an impressive achievement. I know that Justinian and others suffered massive losses and recovered quickly in the past, But Constantine had far fewer resources at his disposal than most of them did. The population of the capital, for example, was far, far smaller than in Justinian's day. So while the catastrophic death toll that Procopius described was a huge shock, in a way it merely downsized the city of 540 from a giant to a very large metropolis. Constantine's city was reduced to the point where it couldn't have functioned without a quick influx of new settlers. One of the clues to this is that Theophanes describes the vineyards and orchards that had to be dug up as being inside the old walls, meaning the original city walls built by Constantine. Those who've looked at the map of Constantinople at the website will know that there's a great expanse of city beyond those leading out to the Theodosian Walls. If that was the only space that had to be dug up, the population had clearly shrunk massively since the 6th century. As horrific as the plague was, it offered a great benefit to Constantine. The capital city was now filled with fresh citizens with no existing ties to his enemies. Many of them only knew Emperor Constantine, son of Leo, as their rightful sovereign. Yersinia had gifted him an unprecedented opportunity to shape their perception of him, imperial power, and the place of icons within the church. The emperor was soon able to remind everyone that he also brought victory over the Arabs. In 751, the caliphate was deep into the civil war, which would bring down the Umayyads. So Constantine assembled his forces and crossed the mountains again. This time, he made for the fortress of Melitene in Armenia. No help was coming to the garrison inside, and they surrendered. Constantine demolished it, and from the surrounding countryside, he again rounded up Christians and took them to Thrace. In 755, he again took an army east for a victorious march through Armenia. He captured and garrisoned the fortress at Comacha, while deporting the population of Theodosiopolis, again taking them to Europe. Once there, his forces were able to place them on farms and cities that had been abandoned or occupied by the Slavs. During this time, it seems the long-forgotten city of Adrianople once again became the home. Of Roman citizens. These policies were not Constantine's invention. They had been an imperial ploy since the II, and Justinian II was the last man to carry them out on a large scale. The idea was to create a sort of no-man's-land between Byzantium and the Caliphate. If the strongholds in the Taurus and Armenian mountains could be destroyed, then it would force the Arabs to invade through more predictable routes, where the theme armies could then more easily counter them. The migration of Christians from east to west also meant taking valuable taxpayers off the caliphate's books and onto Byzantiums. The new colonists would, of course, help repopulate the Balkans. The long, long long-term goal was obviously to make the Balkans a peaceful and prosperous place again and rebuild Roman strength. As Theophanes points out, though, the families taken from Syria were largely Monophysites and would maintain their religious beliefs in Thrace for generations to come. Despite this impressive record during his first decade in power and the genuine signs that he was shoring up the legitimacy of his dynasty, those paying close attention might have spotted a problem. Constantine would be remembered as the ultimate iconoclast emperor. His name would literally be associated with excrement by his enemies. Theophanes and Nicephorus would attempt to cement into history a picture of his illegitimacy. In the next episode, we'll get into the issues which undermined Constantine's right to rule in the eyes of some, as well as his continuing success on the battlefield, this time against the Bulgars. In the meantime, if you want an informal, enthusiastic and fun history discussion, then check out The Lesser Bonaparts. They really are covering a wide number of topics, from Napoleon to Alexander, Procopius to the War of the Roses. Check out their lively discussion on iTunes, Facebook, or at thelesserbonapartes.libsyn.com. They are charming hosts I can tell you Uh, you can also read an interview with me at Robert Horvat's blog about the Byzantine Empire you can see pictures of my bookshelf and my recording equipment as well as find out my current list of top five emperors I'm sure that will scandalize some of you because Justinian isn't on it and Heraclius is not number one you can find a link at the website or on Facebook or visit thehistoryofthebyzantineempire.com